The following program is being brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, welcome. We're taking a different turn to uh, Moyer's Environmental Dialogues today, because we're going to talk about grass. It's what cows want to eat. And better for cattle and the environment, and it's better for us if cows and cattle eat grass. And telling us about this interesting uh, take on environmentalism is Leslie Cox, the uh, farm manager of Hampshire College in Amherst, Massachusetts. Hello, Leslie. Hi, Rob. How are you doing? Excellent. Great. So, are you calling us from the farm? I am calling you from the living room of the farm. <laughs> <laughs> It's uh, it's raining here. Oh, dear. Um, So uh, tell us a little bit about your farm. Okay. Um, As you know, Rob, who's an alum of Hampshire College, we have a farm here at Hampshire College out here in Amherst, Massachusetts. And uh, the farm was created years ago when the college was created in the 1970s as this uh, uh, college land was uh, bought from farmers and uh, being – type of college that gave opportunity to look at the environment at that time of the 60s and 70s. Uh, Professors were interested in working on environmental issues, and uh, the lead was taken by a professor named uh, Ray Coppinger, and Ray started the Farm Center here at Hampshire College and uh, created, uh, uh, you know, situations at the farm here that students that could study as well as talking about agriculture obviously being one of the largest polluters and users of our environment and um, our land environment, let's put it that way, and how, what kind of issues that uh, the Hampshire students could tackle. And from cool. that, then we've uh, created uh, other uh, you know, enterprises. We uh, have a very large vegetable CSA, which uh, has 250 members, I believe, right now, Nancy Hansen, who's our vegetable grower, is totally in charge of that. And then the rest of the enterprises that we have here are uh, cattle, which we'll talk about in a middle minute. We do bees. We do maple syruping. Uh, we do um, a farm or firewood. We do compost. We have all kinds of enterprises that uh, are New England-based, as uh, that's what our environment is, and we mimic that and uh, give opportunity for students to engage um, as we don't have a curriculum, and so therefore students can engage in as easy a way as coming down to work-study to, um, to as complicated as doing their uh, 
you know, work, their thesis work, which is called a Div 3 here at the farm. So it's a pretty involved place, about uh, 125 acres, and 15 acres is the vegetable operation, and the rest of it is all cropland. And, Leslie, you're not an academic. How did you end up in the head of this farm? I don't know, Rob. <laughs> yeah, I do. You came as a, as a farm person, not as, as, a, as a professor that wanted to teach about the farm, right? Exactly. Actually, my background, I grew up on a very large conventional farm in western New York State between Buffalo and Rochester. Our three families, my grandfather and my uncle and my dad, uh, ran the farm altogether. We worked over 1,500 acres when I was a young lad. And we had uh, four hired men and all us teenage boys, and uh, basically we uh, sold uh, hay and other crops up and down the East Coast. Uh, we did corn, oats, wheat, hay. We did different grains, and uh, also we did vegetable crops, too. We did uh, peas and snap peas and sweet corn that went into the cannon factory. So it was a very, very busy place. After that, I went to uh, Cobleskill Ag and Tech College, which is in... Uh, New York State, as well as I graduated with a bachelor's degree from Cornell, and uh, my degree is in agricultural education. And one of the things that I found um, interested me was, of course, this opportunity to talk to non-farm folks about what was happening on the farm um, as there was a change in the 70s when I was in college, too, between the kind of uh, conventional agriculture that... Uh, uh, was starting to emerge and, and uh, be more prolific and more taught at the large land-grant universities. And uh, the kind of agriculture that I understood from uh, being at my grandfather's side for all those years when I was a lad. And so there was quite a bit of opportunity for me to come up through the uh, organic agriculture movement. And um, I did different professional agriculture things. Uh, with um, making farm loans. I sold uh, organic fertilizer. I sold uh, farm seed. I worked in different enterprises that basically gave me this uh, organic background and also, too, grounded me in the kinds of uh, interesting uh, organic enterprises that were starting to emerge that were um, against the grain of, of conventional agriculture um, that gave me opportunity when I got here to Hampshire to uh, make a mimic of so that our students could engage in real production agriculture. Well, this is really important for the Northeast and you know, New England and New York, you know, because you're coming onto the scene as, you know, big corporate farms are getting bigger and bigger and family farms are getting rarer and rarer, and yet the Northeast landscape, I would think, would lend itself to these smaller farms. Well, exactly. I mean, our our situation has become that our our good land, and it can be expected of this, our good land, which there's quite a bit of it here in the Northeast yet, uh, is ample opportunity for conventional farms to use conventional methods to be efficient food producers. And, of course, that's what we're expecting out of our farmers is to be most efficient as far as production. But as one knows, when you're efficient – then sometimes there's a lot of corners you can cut. And uh, those corners, of course, are the kinds of, uh, you know, chemicals and uh, insecticides and, and uh, the non-rotations or non, uh, for a better 
term, use this uh, organic methods of of agriculture that uh, were used for millenniums up until 50 years ago. And um, this, this this is an opportunity here on this farm to kind of mimic those possibilities that could be both conventional as far as making money, which, you know, that's important, but also to be uh, true to nature as far as making sure that we're not uh, cutting too many corners when it comes to doing things right. Yes. Well, I, I noticed that when you came to Hampshire College, um, yes, Ray Coppinger had a big dog program going on, but, you know, you took the farm in a new direction by the introduction of cows. Well, interestingly enough, in a farm policy meeting one day, we were talking about the amount of money that we spent on sheep production, and uh, uh, John Fable, who lived and grew up here in Amherst, uh, remembers back in the 60s the number of dairy cows that were here in this area. And, in fact, the town of Amherst at one point, and I don't know when it was, but everybody keeps saying it was sometime, you know, in the 50s, 40s and 50s, uh, there were more uh, cows in the town of Amherst than there was in any town in the whole state of Massachusetts. And now there's only one dairy left. And if you count mine, which, you know, our Count Hampshire colleges, that makes two. But it's uh, pretty sad that uh, a town that had such an agricultural background is now uh, devoid of, of uh, cattle. And the reason why that happened was, um, or the reason why there were so many cattle, was quite simply cattle are real good at eating the browse, the forages that can be on marginally productive land. Um, so therefore, the town of Amherst, which was made after the town of Hadley, uh, the town of Hadley, of course, is on the river bottom just west of here, uh, that um, gave opportunity here in Amherst so that there's not such great ground up here for farmers to do dairy cattle rather than to do row crops. Hmm. And uh, so... You know, that was the one thing that I saw when I got here is there was a couple dairy barns and, um, you know, plenty of pasture from the sheep operation. And so let's do dairy because of the fact that uh, even if you're a vegetarian, most vegetarians are ovo-lacto-vegetarians and so therefore drink or eat milk products. Let's do a little bit of that and make it, you know, that, that much more interesting. So how did you go about picking a cow to bring to the farm? <laughs> I actually tried out a couple of breeds. It was kind of fun. Um, as I spoke earlier, I had uh, kind of grew up beside my grandfather, who was an exceptional farmer and uh, was able to, you know, buy property from the old style, kind of like people wanted him to buy their farms. Um, and my grandfather developed a, a, a pattern cow that was called linebacks in the in Western New York, and actually, linebacks that are in Western New York yet are known as Cox line linebacks. And Yay. so, I picked up a couple of linebacks. My father, who uh, is retired but still has the farm back home, knew some folks that had some linebacks, and I picked some of them up. I picked up some Devons as well too, although they weren't milking Devons. And then I also picked up from a convent in um, Connecticut Dutch belts. And Dutch belts are an interesting pattern cow as they have front and back a black solid, um, you know, front and rear. 
but in the middle they have a white belt. And uh, many people know the uh, belted cattle as being uh, belted Galloways, which is a combination between the Galloway breed and this older Dutch belt breed. But this Dutch belt breed is from uh, Holland back in the 1700s, and they were bred by the nobility of Holland uh, as being somewhat of a novelty item. And, in fact, uh, P.T. Barnum had a herd of them in Orange County, New York State, uh, that oh. was the rival of most dairies in the United States at the time. And so this breed being critically rare, I happened to uh, get a heifer that was an outstanding milker, as well as her uh, confirmation was beautiful. And I have uh, kept that uh, milk line going and have now a whole herd of Dutch belts. And uh makes it for a great conversation piece, not only by their appearance, but once you talk about their appearance, then you can start talking about genetics and dominance and recessive and, and those kinds of terms. And it helps to bring a dialogue of genetics into a, like a college conversation. So it's a lot of fun to save this critically rare breed of which there's only 2,000 individuals left. How come... You didn't also, or how come you didn't include the uh, the indigenous, you know, Cook's Farm cows? <laughs> you mean like the Holstein types? Is that what they are at Cook's Farm there, the other farm? Yeah, yeah. Um, So we're into breeds. Let's talk about breeds. 97% of the breeds in the United States and a majority of the dairy breeds in, in the world are now Holstein. Uh, Holstein Frisians were also a, a Dutch breed but were known as bigger cows and also because of their productivity then have been the cow of choice uh, that people have, dairymen have used now for probably two or three generations of dairymen just because of the fact that, uh, as spoke earlier, we as farmers have to be efficient in our production and so therefore you will select the cows that will produce the most milk with the you know, uh, so that you can make the most money. The unfortunate part is is twofold. One, these cows eat a lot, um, and who can blame them? Basically, they're trying to put out quite a bit of milk, so therefore their metabolism is quite high. And so, therefore, we've adopted a diet for them that is also controversial in the sense that it's a high metabolic diet loaded with concentrates. And these concentrates, which are the grains, say, for example, corn grain or um, other grains, soybeans, corn and soybeans, of course, the obvious ones, then these cows depend upon this very high concentrated feed in order for them to make a lot of milk. Uh, But I contend that basically if we have less inputs, we can probably get the same amount of output income if we are using some of these older breeds that are efficient at converting grass to feed rather than concentrates to feed. Mm. So that brings us to the back of the Dutch Belteds. So mm-hmm. um, what's it like having Dutch Belteds on your farm? What's it like? It's fun. Well, People it's about the individuals. You know, let's have some cows. Well, wait, I think we have to take a break. Okay. And yep. um, my guest is Leslie Cox from the Hampshire College Farm Center. I'll be right back after this break. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. 
Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. All together now, all together now. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking about cows and cattle and small farms, and the importance of grass as a food source. And my guest is Leslie Cox, the director of the Hampshire College Farm, or the manager or the farmer of the Hampshire College Farm. (laughs) And, uh, Leslie, you've been telling us about, you know, saving an endangered line of cows called the Dutch Belted. These are black or reddish with a white middle. Uh, The black ones don't like to be called Oreo cookies, but they do have that kind of look to them. (laughs) <laughs> so many people call them Oreo cookie cows, that's for sure. And in <laughs> fact, um, um, one of this cow line that I was speaking of, uh, students get to name the calves, especially when they help uh, birth them. And uh, so this line that I was speaking of earlier, uh, the name that the student came up with, of course, was Cookie. So right. Oh, that's cookie, right. Cookie's one of the cows there, yeah. Yeah, so Cookie's line is... Um, and, of course, one of the things that's fun in naming cows is you want to kind of keep in mind what that cow lineage is by maybe using the, the same first letter for all her offspring. So her offspring now have been Coco. And then we got into Cupcake, which there was quite a few of us that were getting concerned that we were uh, becoming typed into uh, just a, a sweet line of, of <laughs> <laughs> of names, so then uh, we ended up with now Cleopatra and uh, Clementine is a new one, as well as uh, you could tell now. I hope that we've turned the corner. The next one now is Calla Lily, so she's Callie. So and they all make, came from c- Cookie. They all came from Cookie. Yep, and that's the way the cookie crumbles, right? Sorry, oh. uh, but anyway, uh, play that on the radio. Um, so <laughs> they, um, you were telling us that the first 
belted came from a cov- uh, convent in Simsbury, Connecticut. And uh, Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Yeah, it's a, place, oh, that's it's a good place for a convent, right? Somehow. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's right. That's probably for a convent. Uh, what was the name of the first uh, belted uh, um, belt in your way? I'm trying to remember. It started with, with C, but the, the sisters always use Latin names. So um, let me think. I, I can't remember now. So you started with one or a couple from the... Um... I started with three of them. I started with actually a red Dutch belted named Be- Bene. I can remember Bene easy enough because uh, yep. she was pretty controversial. She was a real rascal as far as, uh, you know, tr- checking on fences for us. You know, she she figured that was her job. Um, also, too, standing still while milking, she was a little bit difficult, but... It was also a lot of fun having a red Dutch belted around, too, because red is recessive in the cow world. So she was a critically rare breed and a critically rare color, so it made it a lot of fun to have her around. And her daughter, Bene's daughter, Bethany, is here yet, so uh, she's, she's also kind of a rascal as well. So, But, uh, yeah, the convent uh, makes cheese, and there's uh, actually... Uh, a a movie out on the cheese making nuns uh, called the you know the cheese nun and uh, it's about one of the nuns who went to Europe and did her PhD in microbiology by checking out all the different kinds of uh, flavors and microbiology that created them for her PhD work at UConn. But now students can get a BA in cheese making at Hampshire College, right? You betcha. Yep. We have a professor, Jason Tor, who spends uh, uh, every other semester time doing uh, a cheese-making class, and uh, you participated in that the other day, right? Um, no, I hung out with you, but there he was when you were milking the cows. He was Jason was there with a pail waiting for the milk. Yeah, exactly. We took the milk right from that spot, and it went right up to uh, Jason's laboratory up on campus, and... They made different cheeses and milk products out of it and uh, sampled some of them right away. So I was impressed by the way you handle cows. Um, Thank you. <laughs> that, you know, you uh, definitely had, well, you had, you, you kind of were particularly concerned about Bethany. Um, I guess the other ones were more tolerant of what was happening around them or? Yeah, Bethany's a little skittish. She, like I said, she's always been, her, her and her mom have always been controversial. They uh, are nervous around the situation of being milked by us, um, but not so bad of where we would need to call her. But just, again, it's something that we, you know, make everybody aware of because especially these cows being handled so much by young students, obviously I don't want them to get hurt, but also, too, you know, it's just one of those things where they uh, – I want people to feel comfortable around them as well, too. So there's, like handling any animal, there's a few ground rules that everybody needs to understand so that we can go forth. <laughs> so so the, the cows came in at 7 in the morning, or they were already there or something, and you put some grain out to entertain them, I guess, while they were being milked. Yeah, that's kind of, you know, the candy to get them in. Yeah, and then um, you, you wanted to be sure to get them out before they started pooping and stuff. Well, yeah, we've trained them to not poop in the barn or pee, too. It's kind of hard for them to not, uh, you know, do the sect number two yeah. because of the fact that uh, oxytocin, which is the hormone of letdown, also pu- pushes on their bladder. 
but they can control their bladder just like we can. Uh, it's just a matter of training them just like you would train a dog or cat or anything else. So you saw them out of the barn, and, and they just marched off into their field again. Mm-hmm. And then you um, took a bucket of grain, and we went up and found some heifers? Oh, yeah, that's right. You went with me there, yep, yep. Again, just training them to come to the call and also be, you know, checking on them to make sure they're not limping or having any health problems at all. It's, uh, you know, it's the old adage that the uh, best fertilizer is the farmer's footsteps. Huh. <laughs> well, they seemed very happy. They came galloping across the field or across <laughs> through the grass when uh, you came out with your bucket of, of grain and, you had to spread it along the fence so that each cow could get a chance to have some, or each heifer. Yep, and, yep, and I can take a close look at them as well. Yeah, and they got to lick my hand and stuff. That was nice. <laughs> um, and a lot of people think, you know, that there's cattle and there's dairy, and it seems like to me, like, if you're going to have dairy, you're going to end up with some heifers and stuff. Well, yeah, it, you know, it's a 50-50 deal as far as offspring, so there's going to always be males. And, uh, of course, you know, most males are uh, eliminated from the herd, uh, you know, sold to be either veal or, uh, you know, basically castrated and then, you know, steered out, um, you know, for later in life as they get bigger. And then half of them are going to be females, which are going to be your offspring to replace the female animals as they get older. And for a milking cow, how often do they have to give birth? Uh, they give a birth every year. Uh, we time it so that basically you'd like to have them come in in the springtime in a natural setting. Um, and interestingly enough, in our unnatural conventional way, we've bred cows now to come in all times of the year so that there's an equal amount of milk coming into the uh, you know your financial situation you can uh, make your payments year round rather than just during the time where you have the most milk uh, so but mimicking that natural system we do here, then we uh, breed them so that uh, nine months later they'll be coming in during the best time when grass is available, which is in may and and June, and that way they have the most uh, ability to get their feed and make the most milk which, of course, mimics the uh, way that they would feed their offspring at that time as well, too. And um, so um, tell us about managing grass. Okay. Well, you're not you're just not only a cow manager. You're also a grass manager. Trent. Well, that's it. I mean, Joel Salden uh, also speaks of that in, the, in his books about how uh, you're not basically animal managers. You're managers of the grass and mimicking what the sunshine gives you, which, of course, is a grass growth that is most uh, able to produce during uh, that period of time between when grass starts to come up and, of course, when the days get too short in September, October, where you have, uh, you know, the sunshine is diminishing and you don't have grass available. And if you, during the extra time that you have grass growing, take it off as hay, then uh, you'll have or dried grass in the barn for year-round. So um, that mimics the way that cows have been kept ever since we started keeping them. And, yeah, you're talking tens of, you're talking millions of years, I guess. Well, yes. I mean, at least in the 
historical period that we can find out about, you know, uh, we know that, you know, 10,000 years ago, 20,000 years ago, 10 to 15,000 years ago, uh, we were uh, uh, harvesting, you know, on the uh, grasslands cattle-like animals. We were watching them. We were stalking them. Uh, Certainly when we came to to the New World, uh, you know, cattle or bison were being managed by Native Americans as well, too. Uh, It's it's something that is old as time. Uh, Europeans obviously became adapted at, you know, capturing the animals and keeping them on the farm, so to speak, which became a farm, I should say. Um, but of course, too, treated with such, they were treated with such reverence that uh, still in France you can find barns of where people keep cattle down below and their houses up above. Uh, it's one of those things that uh, we've mimicked through many, many, many years of time. And in fact, it's in the cave paintings of, of France that, uh, uh, that it shows cattle in groups and it shows you know, people in their relationship with those cattle as well, too. It's it's pretty interesting to come across those things historically. Well, we're going to take a quick break. Be right back. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. All together Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking about grass. It's what cows want to eat. It's better for cattle and the environment and for us, too, to have cattle and cows eating grass. And my guest today is Leslie Cox from the Hampshire College Farm Center, um, cow manager extraordinaire. And uh, 
Leslie, how can people learn more about um, the farm and uh, organic farming and all the stuff you're doing? Okay. We obviously have a website that is the college's website, and I can be contacted at lcox, L-C-O-X, at hampshire.edu. And, of course, one would like to check out Hampshire College. There's the Hampshire College website at hampshire.edu as well. And also I belong, as Rob mentioned, to uh, the board of uh, several organizations, one I'm most proud of and do the most work with, which is NOFA, uh, which stands for the Northeast Organic Farming Association or Farmers Association. And the Massachusetts chapter is NOFA or www.nofamass.org, which is N-O-F-A-M-A-S-S dot O-R-G. And we, through NOFA, have... Uh, quite a few uh, farmers that uh, produce raw milk on pasture, um, unfortunately mainly out here in western Massachusetts, but there are quite a few people who come out to western Massachusetts and pick up raw milk. Uh, raw milk can only be sold on the farm at this point, so basically uh, people, customers need to come to the farms to purchase those. And again, at the website for NOFA, one can find that information um, and, and uh, participate in NOFA, which there's a large summer conference every year out here in Amherst. It's at uh, UMass. And, again, the NOFA website can talk about that, as well as all the other northeastern states, uh, not including Mass or not including Maine. Maine has uh, MOSCA, and, uh, again, from, for folks from Maine, they can contact MOFGA, M-O-F-G-A, uh, Maine Organic Farming and Gardening Association for information about uh, raw milk and organic milk and uh, grass-fed dairies as well. And if people want to know more about Nancy's community-supported agriculture. Yep. Her email address is nhanson at hampshire.edu as well. So if people want to subscribe to Picking Up Vegetables Weekly at Hampshire College, Nancy Hanson is the one to talk to. Yep. But... We don't try and sell off of campus because of the fact that uh, uh, we are in a community of CSAs, and uh, therefore we kind of limit it to the Hampshire community or the five college community because of all the different CSAs up and down the valley, and our being subsidized by the college wouldn't quite be fair if we competed. So, oh, that's uh, fair. Should, yeah. Is there a CSA uh, clearinghouse that people should go to instead of bothering Nancy for recommendations? Um, yes, of course, from NOFA as well, too. NOFA has a yeah. listing of all the organic uh, producers here uh, state by state, I might add. And so, again, the NOFA Mass uh, website will help people navigate that as well. Yeah, it's remarkable uh, the, the amount of support, a subscription to community support of agriculture that comes from the college students right there. Oh, amazing, yep. Um, you know, it, it's... Uh, you know, students need to buy their food for the semester, so it's a pretty handy way of uh, having uh, your college student go to college with some money in their pocket and realize at least they'll be eating vegetables through the fall. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So going back to the vegetables for the cows, your uh, belted Dutch cows, Mm -hmm. um, I noticed in the barn that, there are all these calendars posted around there, and um, you clearly are watching the seasons very closely. Oh, yes. Uh, farming, of course, is that kind of seasonality, and when you're farming, 
you know, in an organic method like this, then it's obvious that you really have to watch it quite closely. We, um, as Rob spoke, we have charts or calendars up that show us uh, when animals will be in estrus, which means that they'll be in heat and ready to receive, uh, um, you know, semen in order to be pregnant to, you know, freshen, which is the term for a calf, nine months from what their breeding date is. And so, therefore, we, as soon as the cows come in, start to watch them for what's called standing estrus, which means that the cows, um, as they kind of, like, stand around, jump on each other and play and wrestle just like a bunch of teenage boys, as you can imagine. And when one is standing still while being mounted by another cow, then basically you you know that she's in standing estrus, and that's when you can uh, breed her. We don't have a bull on the farm. Uh, we use what's called artificial insemination. We have a breeder who comes with frozen semen that I buy, and he keeps in his uh, dry ice tank. And uh, he thaws the semen out and is able to uh, impregnate the cow um, by uh, inseminating her with the thawed-out semen uh, after he comes in and uh, is able to, to do that. So nine months later, voila, we have a calf. So it really works quite nicely. But you time it carefully for the grass. Yes, we do. Like I said earlier, we are watching to see if uh, we can get everybody in that period of time that's May, June, so that they're at optimal opportunity to uh, consume the grass that we have available for them. Uh, the way the grass cycle works, as I spoke earlier, it peaks really at the summer solstice, which was yesterday, and um, what grass is doing is it's trying to flower, uh, reproduce sexually, of course, and have a seed head at its very top. And at that point, usually the flowering has happened for most grasses, most grasses meaning the cool season grasses that we use from northern Europe here in the United States. And those cool season grasses start to form a seed head. And in forming a seed head, they're needing to keep the seed off the ground so that it will dry and it will fill and ripen so that in the fall or winter when the grass is pushed down to the ground and the seed head is pushed out of the um, flower top or to the top of the grass, then it can reproduce sexually. But in doing so, what happens is, is that the cells are getting harder and harder after that point so they can hold that seed head up. And that cellulose that uh, is needed to keep the plant wall uh, intact gets harder and harder for the animal to digest. So, therefore, if you can cut the hay or cut the grass before it gets to that point, then you have a more succulent feed. So just like your lawn, how you cut that over and over and over again, and the grass itself is growing back and tillers and doesn't make a seed head, that leafy grass is the type of grass that uh, bovines or animals that consume grasses are looking for because that will have the most nutrition in it. And then you've got a, a stick that has markings on it. Yep. So you can manage these grasslands by knowing what are the optimal heights. In other words, as you can picture, if you kept mowing the grass, the type of grasses that we want to have for, for cattle consumption, if you kept mowing them too short, 
and basically they wouldn't have the ability to produce as as well as if you let them grow up to six to eight inch heights. And basically, if you kept them from going higher than that or lower than two and a half inches, then that, those are the optimal times of which you can harvest that grass. Um, a lot of the science now is coming from New Zealand. As in New Zealand, they're able to uh, forage or make grass almost 10 months out of the year, some places 12. And in doing so, they've completely used their grasslands uh, to make a lot of milk. And in fact, they make so much milk that they ship it as casein here in the United States. They can ship, they can make and ship casein, which is a protein derivative of milk, into the United States that's used in chemical production and also in nylon and other things like that, mm. uh, cheaper than we can make it or even, con- even make, uh, you know, put it into a product here in the United States. And they do that because they're just using pastures that they manage intensely, like the science that I just explained as far as how you would uh, manage a grass to uh, go to its optimal height and then cut it back down again. So that's excellent. That You know, there's a whole ecology that has to be in harmony, exactly. the, uh, that of the cow and that of the uh, grass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we, we know that science. It's just that, unfortunately, our scientists, are not recognizing that that's an economic model for the United States to use. We went down another road. We decided that we would use concentrates as feed rather than forages as feed. If you go back to the original feeds and feeding by Morrison, that was a Cornell professor from the turn of the 19th century, then basically that was the beginning of the science of agriculture. And Morrison was able to uh, publish, and it actually was a textbook I used when I was in college, uh, uh, bas- the basic Bible of what feeds and feeding should be. And the irony of that is, is that at that time, and old-timers, and I'm going to use that word loosely, old-timers recognized that you fed animals their roughage first and fed concentrates afterwards. <coughs> Roughages are those forages that are your grasses. And also, you know, corn is a grass, but the plant itself, of course, is the grass part of it, and the concentrate part is the grain part, the seed head. And those concentrates were used to supplement the, the, or to supplement the roughages or the forages. And now we have many people, because, or many growers, or many livestock producers, kind of have reversed that trend. They've used concentrates as the full amount of what animals are eating so that they can push the productivity and efficiency to a point of where I think that they've gone too far. (laughs) Because, again, cows want to eat grass. They want to eat the forages before they want to eat, you know, or before they should have the concentrates. And how can you tell by looking at the cows that they're going too far? Yeah, I mean, the comparison would be like teenagers. If you gave them candy all the time, of course, that's what they would eat, but we know what happens. This is why we're in such a situation with obesity. Um, the other point about, um, you know, concentrates and roughages are the fact that concentrates are high in omega-6s, and that balance of omega-3 and omega-6 is important in all of our diets. And now that animals, 
and including us too, are eating more omega-6 rich foods, that's where our obesity and, and um, you know, fat problems are coming from is that is a harder, uh, that, that's a type of fat that is stored. And uh, so therefore, we're not only eating it ourselves and our sugars and other kinds of fast energy foods, but also too, our animals are eating that as well too. And therefore, our consumption of those products of our animals are also higher in omega-6 than omega-3s. And the, the cow's digestion doesn't seem to work as well. Exactly. When you feed concentrates as heavy as they do now, and especially acid-based feeds, acid-based feeds would be those things that have been ensiled. For example, haylage, which would be alfalfas or forages that are ensiled, or corn, which, of course, is uh, chopped fine and then uh, ensiled as well, too, meaning that the air is eliminated and the um, uh, uh, pH on the product then is lowered to where it is more acid, 4, 5 as a pH, and basically uh, those forage or those uh, kinds of silages are fed to cows. And nutritionists say that basically, you know, cows will like that because of the fact that they're at, they add acids to their uh, rumens as they digest food to begin with. But right, but think, they really don't. And I hate to cut you off, but we're going to take a quick break. Sure. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. All together now, all together now. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI Actions and Events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking with Leslie Cox from the Hampshire College Farm Center. And Leslie was explaining to us the chemistry of the feed that goes into our cattle and cows, our dairy cows and our 
meat cattle, uh, there's been this emphasis to really push on the um, corn and uh, and high cellulose, um, you know, roughage and stuff that um, is uh, adding uh, the wrong kinds of omega, uh, so that this it's making them fatter, or they could deal, or and the food could be less healthy. And also, you were saying that adding acidity to acid cow stomachs is not good for the digestion. Did I get that right? Well, there isn't that sense of basic, you know, uh, digestion. Certainly, the opportunity here is that, you know, if we give help to the, the, to the rumen, then cows can be more efficient in their digestion. But at the same time, that would be kind of like our eating, you know, pre-digested food ourselves. It uh, somewhat doesn't make any sense. And then the irony of it, of course, is is that uh, the methane that comes off of these animals because of the way that they're fed these pre-digested uh, materials or acided materials is incredible. Uh, of course, they're the kind of feed lot feeding that we do to animals, unfortunately, adds to the kind of uh, bad press that cattle have been getting lately as far as the amount of uh, methane production that they produce which, of course, they do produce methane, but at the same time, more concerning to me is the amount of carbon that we use up in getting their food to them. Basically, they have to uh, have the corn that is grown has to be, uh, the land has to be plowed, so therefore we're releasing carbon when we're plowing ground. We're using petrochemicals and we're using fertilizers that are uh, carbon-based to grow corns and alfalfas. We're using equipment that are using diesel fuels to harvest this, uh, you know, uh, feed. The feed is then hauled to where these animals are. Uh, in some cases, over thousands of, or, you know, hundreds of miles, almost thousands of miles. In other words, here in the middle of the United States, all that grain is being hauled to, say, for example, Dalmarva for chickens and pigs and and then hauled west to cattle uh, feedlots there in Texas and in the Dakotas. And all that carbon is being used to get this efficient feed, which I don't think has any efficiency now because of that, to these animals that are standing still. And yeah. if you just let the cows go eat the grass that was there to begin with, say, for example, in Iowa or in the Midwest, then we wouldn't have all that carbon released just to start with. <laughs> So we can save the, help save the planet and reduce the greenhouse gas emissions by having cows and cattle turn to uh, grazing instead of being fed stuff. Exactly. I mean, basically, going back to what we were talking about here in Amherst, Massachusetts, if your dairy products came from here in Massachusetts from cows that were eating grass here in this neighborhood or even in places close to Boston that used to have dairy cattle, of course, then the carbon footprint would be so much less as far as transportation as well as the fact that the animals themselves would be consuming on land that is not being used for anything other than growing grass for lawns. <laughs> well, look at the highway system. It's all boarded by grass and stuff. And if we <laughs> clean up cars, the internal combustion machines, so they weren't putting out so many poisons, you know, mm-hmm. you could have, you know, belted uh, Dutch cattle all and cows <laughs> all along those grass We'll have to t- talk to the Massachusetts uh, Turnpike Authority about having cattle do the interiors of the highway, huh? <laughs> well, it would save money on cutting the grass. It would have cattle do it. There you go. Do it. 
<laughs> well, I'm worried about the poisons out of the cars for now, but um, yeah, yeah. But it's, it's so great having fresh, organic, or fresh, healthy foods available like that. Yes, it is, and uh, students have that opportunity to have that here, and it's a real treat to see a look on their faces when they're making products like that. Leslie Cox, I want to thank you for taking this time to explain how that by having cattle and cows eat grass instead of corn and other things like that, uh, we can help save the planet and be healthier, and the cows and cattle are happier. <laughs> yeah, given the choice, they certainly do. <laughs> I've sold cattle to dairy farmers and had them complain to me and then realize that they were uh, not right. Uh, over the fact that they'll go right outside and start eating grass. And I said, well, that's what they were treating, that's what they wanted to. <laughs> they'll walk right past the feed bunk. Yep, exactly. <laughs> that's what you were saying was the old style, was that first you had them pastured and then you would supplement them with uh, the yeah. other foods. Yeah, exactly. That's, you go back to Morrison and that's what he tells you, that, that roughages and forages are the building blocks of good animal health. And unfortunately, that's we forgot all that. Leslie Cox, how can people uh, keep track of the good stuff you're doing? Well, both through the NOFA website, which is NOFA Mass, as I mentioned that earlier, N-O-F-A, and also, too, at uh, Hampshire.edu. Leslie Cox, thank you for talking about cows and grass with us today on Moyer's Environmental Dialogue. Thanks, Rob. I really appreciate it. Talk to you later. Until next time, thanks for listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogue. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Living Channel. We'll talk again then. Talk.